want to say a quick prayer and ask God to continue to bless us and encourage us through one another and uh, to lead us into Bible study today. Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you for your, your, your faithfulness. Lord, I pray that every person here would have their own stories. We're one step at a time. And where it just seemed like there's, there's no way that, that, that you made a way. And, and they would smile and say, man, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story. And God began to then lead me and guide me. And then, man, it seemed like there was no way. And then there was a way. Lord, I pray that we would settle into that reality that that's, that's how life is. That, Lord, you don't show us everything at once, but instead you say, what's it to you? Follow me. And then you provide. And Lord, I thank you for Marty and for Nancy. Would you bless them, Lord, as we prepare maybe in a couple weeks to love on them in that way? Just show them. Give, give them boldness and gladness and preparation, Lord, for that move to Tennessee. And Lord, we thank you for Tobias and Andrea and Grayson and Colton, their kids, as they're, they're living here now, Lord, as they're, they, they came over. Would you bless them? Would you bless them a hundredfold? Would you multiply their gifts, Lord, their talents, their joy, their health, Lord? Would you just bless them? They, they've moved here to serve us. I pray that they'd have vision, Lord, and, and protection, Lord. And I thank you so much for Rory and Tiff, Lord, and Lily and Adonai and Malachi and now Magnolia. Bless them. They're such, such a valuable, Lord, addition to our family here. And serve so many people living all the way in Walport and just running young life and middle school and high school and worship ministry. And we thank you, Jesus, for all you've done. And Lord, you're just so good to us. Would you bless us now, the family of God? Encourage us, Lord, as you lead us one step at a time. Help us to know what the faith step is that you have for us. And may we find encouragement in your word today. And that we thank you for all you've done and all you're going to do. We commit our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Once again, everybody says amen. amen and amen. Well, today is Valentine's Day. So happy Valentine's Day to everyone here. And some of the single people are super mad that I even brought that up. And I understand that. And I think it's awesome that we're studying this portion of Scripture. We just got done with a week dedicated to the wives, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. A week dedicated to the husbands, verses 7 uh, in 1 Peter 3. And we've been talking about marriage and relationships. And some of the women's ministry team got together and they took an offering and raised a bunch of money. And they gave it to me and said, would you please preach to the husbands one more week? And um, just please, please. That's actually not true. It's funny, though. It's funny. Um, it's funny. It reminded me of a, a, a joke that I had heard of a man who uh, recently was married, and he said he had no idea what happiness was until he got married. And then it was too late. <laughs> That's not even funny. Some of you guys will get that later, but... You know, it's, it's, and, and here's the deal. It's Valentine's Day. We've been talking about relationships and, 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 and suffering and marriage and, and all these things in God's economy and God's purpose. And in life, God has created certain relationships that are designed by him to do a number of things, to emulate and to model who he is and who the church is. That's the mystery of marriage. And, but also to mature us. When you commit to a, a person, another person, a male and female commitment, two uh, similar, equal, but very different people coming together, it is going to create an opportunity, listen, for maturity. As a matter of fact, one of my really good friends, Jeremy Haskell, such a good friend is he that for the last 25 years he's been on my phone plan. He's still on my phone plan. He goes to the U.S. Bank there in Medford, Oregon, and he makes a deposit every week and when he walk, or every month. And when he walks in the door, they say, how you doing, Luke? And he just takes it, you know, and he's from Vietnam. I don't even know how he's pulling that off. But he pulls that. And, he, and so Jeremy Haskell, when he was going through his premarital counseling, he was with Lenny and, and Sally Parrish, and him and Lisa, Jeremy, were about to get married. And they just asked them, this older, wiser couple, this missionary couple, they said, why are you guys getting married? And Jeremy had the answer of all answers. He said, for these two reasons, to glorify God and to be refined in the process. That when these marriage counselors heard that, they're like, whoa, that's the greatest thing I've ever heard. Write that down. That's a good, you know, why are you getting married? To glorify God and to be refined in the process. Now, obviously, Jeremy had read a book on marriage and he knew what marriage was all about because nobody answers that way. Most people get married because we're in love and, man, we want to sleep together and we want to, you know, find this. And there's all these reasons why we get married. He nailed it, though, when he said, our marriage is to glorify God. But listen, it's also going to refine us in the process. We are going to be changed. We are going to be conformed to his image. 
we are going to be matured as we love one another. And you who've been married for any season or any season at all in your life, you know that that is indeed the case. My wife and I, today is our 20-year anniversary of the day we got engaged. We got engaged on Valentine's night. And the way it worked out for us, we were flying together with a group of 10 other people to Honduras there about two days before Valentine's. I think we left on a Sunday. Valentine's was on a Wednesday that day. And as we were flying to Honduras to do a mission trip, I was the leader of the team. And this young 19-year-old girl had come along and I'd fallen in love with her. And I had talked to her mother and everyone else that I was in submission to in my life. And I asked them for counsel and wisdom. Should I? Could I? Can I marry this girl? And everyone gave me green lights. Even my mom sitting right there. And she'd never met Crystal, but she'd been praying for her her for a while. And, and so what I did was I went to the Evangel bookstore before we got on the plane and I bought a $25 sterling silver ring with a cross on it. 25 bucks because I'm a big spender. <laughs> I, thought, I didn't know. Nobody told me how to do this stuff. And so I bought a $25 ring and I snuck some communion elements in my bag with me. And as we flew to Miami, I stole the blankets off of the Miami airplane and took them to San Salvador, El Salvador with me. And then we took another smaller plane to Honduras, and we jumped on a bus and drove up in the back of a dump truck to Tegucigalpe uh, uh, and then to Las Aguilas where we were staying in this village. And on Valentine's Day, it was a Wednesday, and we got in the back of this pickup truck. It was actually a dump truck. All of us in the standing in the back of this dump truck, and we went down to this village, and we taught the gospel to them and celebrated with them. And on the way back up to our village where there's no electricity, no running water, none of those things with us, we all went to bed except Crystal and I who were smitten lovebirds. We stayed up that night, and we sat on these two little flimsy white chairs overlooking the valley. And I remember sitting there with her. It was pitch dark, couldn't see anything but the stars. And on Valentine's night, I began to explain to her out of Daniel chapter 9 how Daniel had received a vision from God. And yet he didn't know what it meant. And so he prayed and said, Lord, give me the understanding. And he prayed once, twice, thrice, four, five, six, two weeks. Three weeks had gone by and he'd been praying. And on the 21st day, which was how many days we'd been dating, Daniel was visited by Gabriel, the messenger angel. And the angel said, here's the answer to your prayers. And he told him what he was looking for. And so I use that as my segue point to then turn to my knee and kneeled down. I said, Crystal, we've been praying for 21 days. Just 21 days. Guys, take note and make sure you at least triple that time. We prayed for 21 days. And I said, God has given me the answer. He has showed me what his will is. Crystal, would you follow me as I follow Christ? Would you be my wife? Would you marry me? Now, I couldn't see her face because it was pitch black. <laughs> and when I asked her the question... About 15 minutes went by before she answered. It was actually about 10 seconds. But it seemed like forever, and I'm thinking to myself, I blew it. I rushed this too fast, too quick, and I had all these thoughts. In reality, what was going on is she was crying and gathering herself, and she answered, of course. Now, at that moment, we stood up and hugged. We had committed at that point in our uh, engagement to not kiss until our wedding day, and so we didn't start making out and doing all that stuff. Instead, I said, follow me. And I grabbed her and I led her through the village that we were building and all these homes that were under construction. And I led her back to this one particular empty building that we had made out of cinder block. And in that building were the blankets that I'd stolen from the plane in Miami. And I had laid them out with tea candle lights that had been lit and also the communion elements that I had smuggled into the country from Ashland, Oregon. <laughs> At least that's how I see it. And I showed her this setup. And I said, the first thing we're going to do as an engaged couple is we're going to take communion. And the reason we're going to take communion is because there's no way we can come together and move forward without the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. He is between us. He is behind us. He is over us. He is everything. And we got on our knees there on that concrete floor on the blankets. And, and we prayed and we worshiped and we cried and we took communion together. Fast forward about four months later, June 9th, we got married. And the first thing we did after we exchanged our vows was not kiss. First thing we did was we took communion again. And I asked Pastor John Minor, who was overseeing our wedding that day, I said, can I talk to the crowd before we take communion? And he said, this is your show, bro. Do whatever you want to do. And I grabbed the microphone. Yeah. Well, welcome. Some of you guys were there at that wedding. And I preached the gospel and said, we're going to go take communion now. And I want everyone here, while we're taking communion and our best friends are playing live music... I want you guys to do business with the Lord yourself. 
It is all about Jesus. And as he brings us together, there's no way we can find ourselves moving together successfully without the blood of Jesus Christ, without his finished work on the cross. And we went and took communion. And man, today is our 20-year anniversary, so praise God for that Valentine's story. Yeah, yeah, praise God. And it reminds me of God's gift to his kids. And here on St. Valentine's Day, just quickly, St. Valentine was born in the late 2nd century, right around the year 200. He died on Valentine's Day, February 14th, 269. The guy that killed him was Claudius the Cruel. Kind of a cool name, but not a cool guy. Claudius the Cruel. This wasn't a name he earned. This is a name he asked for. That's who I am. Claudius the Cruel was such a mercenary that in leading the Roman Empire, he said, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to go next level. We're going to have armies upon armies upon armies upon armies. And he realized in order to have armies upon armies and to take over the world and to strengthen himself, we're going to need men who are soldiers, listen, not husbands. And so Claudius the Cruel came up with this idea. He said, you know what? No more marriage, no more engagement, no more love, no more weddings, because I don't like husbands. I need soldiers. And so he outlawed and banished marriage. Not only was that happening by Claudius the Cruel, but as you can imagine, in the first, second, and third century of Roman rule, Christianity was just now getting started and marriage was coming under attack. All kinds of perversities were celebrated, and it was the norm. Pedophilia was on the rise, and it was practiced by many. All kinds of issues were on the table, and there was St. Valentine. True story. And St. Valentine said, you know what? i got to make a stand for what God has given to us in his word in marriage. And so St. Valentine would perform secret weddings, secret marriages. Husbands and wives would come together in love, and he would wed them and tie their hands in knots and do all kinds of things and, and, and perform weddings and ceremonies. And he took a stand in a very dark age for what he considered Christian marriage, God's design, God's perfect gift to mankind. And he paid the ultimate price for it. It found, was found out that he was performing these secret marriages, and so they took him, and he was condemned to death by clubbing, and then beheading. Which, by the way, next time you're looking for love while clubbing. No? Just remember St. Valentine. And he was clubbed to death and beheaded for what he believed in. And I want to make sure we know that story, because today is St. Valentine's Day, and, and really... As much as I'm thankful for my story, as much as I'm grateful for St. Valentine's story, and as much as I'm thankful for the last couple of weeks we've talked about husbands and wives and what to do, let me just give us all a, a mandate, if you would, a biblical mandate. Each one of us have a stance and an opinion on what we believe with world social issues. We have the Bible, which is our foundation. This is our guidebook. This is our instruction book. Okay, read it to find instruction. You have questions about abortion. You have questions about marriage. You have questions about divorce. You have questions. Okay, read the Bible. Questions about forgiveness, questions about restoration, questions about grace and mercy, read the Bible. But what I would, I would implore you to do is, like St. Valentine, who took a stand for what he believed was right and pure and a gift from God and it cost him his life. And while you may have a stance against abortion or, or against other types of perversions that are being presented in the world, let me say this to husbands and wives. May you more than anything, instead of fighting for justice and righteousness out there, can I just say, fight for your own marriage. Okay? Fight for your marriage. Fight for your friends' marriages. Be fierce to protect your marriage. Be fierce to pray for the people around you that are married. And I want you to hear this, because there are some who have a stance on things that is biblical and clear out there and for others and in those realms, but when it comes to your own practice, the... the the, the gloves are off and there's just no activity and there's no, no fighting. And I just think it's easy to be opinionated and excited about other things. And one pastor put it this way, he said, if it doesn't work at home, it doesn't work. If what you believe in and the ministry and what you propose and when you, what you put on Facebook, and it's got to start at home. And I just want to encourage us to never stop fighting for what God has given to us. It's under attack. That's obvious. If I stood up here, though, and said marriage and sanctity of life and all these things are under attack and the attack's out there and I have nothing to do with it, I think I would probably be slowly picked off. 
there are things within my own life that God says, Luke, that's, that's okay. Don't, 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 don't get so distracted in the log that's coming out of your brother's eye, the world and the chaos. Don't get so distracted. You got a speck in your own eye. Or is it the, is it the, the other way around? The speck and a log. Thank you. Appreciate you. And I think the Lord would have us to be those who are both serving others, but also checking in with ourselves. So uh, can I get an amen from somebody? Amen. amen and amen. Well, let's take our Bibles now and let's read verses 8 through 12. We might go a little further, but I think we're going to get to verse 12 today. Peter now switches gears. Listen, he's been addressing husbands. He's been addressing wives. He's been addressing servants. He's been addressing citizens all within relationships that aren't necessarily picture perfect, all within relationships that have problems and difficulties and setbacks. And so now he's giving instructions. Listen, here's how he sums it up. Look at verse eight. He says, finally, all of you be of one mind. Now, as we read this next portion, he's not just talking to wives or husbands or servants or employers or citizens or leaders. He says, all of you. This is for everyone. You ever been to a Bible study before and you heard a sermon like, oh, such a good sermon. I'm going to download that and send it to so-and-so. You, ever, you know, those sermons are so good. You just wish that person was here. Husbands, you wish your wife was here. Wife, you wish your husband. Oh, this is so good. You know, and, and Peter just says, hey, this is for everybody. This isn't just for that person over there. And if you've ever taken feverish notes for somebody else to listen to, chances are there's a lesson in your near future as well. What Peter gives to us next, I also want to say, is not advice. It's not a Hallmark card with you know, some soft words. These are commands. These are commands. As much as there were commands to husbands, as much as there were commands to wives, as much as there are commands to citizens, as much as there are commands to employers and employees, okay, these are commands. And so what we read here isn't just, hey, I hope you, can, hope you can pull this off. I hope this is one day something you, you appreciate. And I want you also to understand that what he's about to say to this group of people was so important that the gospel had already been established. Jesus had already risen from the dead. The tomb was already empty. The ascension had already happened. The anointing of the Holy Spirit had already dropped. Let me say it very intentionally. And no one cared. And so what God did, he said, I'm going to send you out as witnesses. Your life, the way you live, the way you've embraced this truth, the way you now grow in grace and knowledge, you're going to be the one that helps lead people to Jesus Christ. Let me make sure you understand how important this is. Have you met a non-believer that knows you and cares not about your God, your theology, your Bible, or your belief? They don't care about that. Their spirits aren't alive yet. They don't know God yet. They haven't tasted and seen that he's good. They don't have that. And so God gave them you. And you want to share the Bible with them. And I understand that. And there's power in the word. And faith comes by the word of God. And the word is alive. And they need the word. Paul says about you, though, and about me, we're living epistles. That we are indeed those witnesses of him and his power. And they don't, I'm just going to say, they don't care what you believe until they're impacted by the way that you behave. And when they see you go through a troublesome time and you come out on the other side, praising God, humble, smiling, tear-stained cheeks, because that hurt. But you come out the other side worshiping, even though your marriage ended in divorce, even though the battle ended in death, even though there was bankruptcy, there was loss, whatever you went through. Here's something I want you guys to consider. Our worst times can be our best times if we let God do what he wants to do. Don't raise your hand. How many of you guys are excited about a worst time in your life? Up ahead, you see the off-ramp. Worst time ahead, you know. You're not going to take that exit. Most of the time, we don't get a pick. We just don't. And so the Lord has established his gospel, salvation. All of that's true. The word of God is founded. It's true. It's profitable for everything. And yet God says, I want you who are believers to follow what I ask you to do 
in order that when people ask you for the hope that you have in you, you can give to them an answer with meekness and humility. That's verse 15. That's where he's going. So when you're living in Rome and when you're being burned to death, when you're being persecuted, when they're taking away your rights, when they're infringing upon your freedoms, when they're taking away your values, you can respond these ways. He gives us seven things, six things to do, one thing not to do. Let's read it together. Finally, verse 8, all of you be of one mind. Love or having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous or, or humble. Not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And now he quotes out of Psalm 34. For he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He quotes now Psalm 34, a Psalm of David as a proof text. Why we should be of one mind. Why we should be tenderhearted. Why we should be courteous. Why we should have brotherly love. Why we shouldn't return evil for evil. Why on the contrary, we should return blessing for evil. And he says, because if you want to love life, you want to have good days. Quick poll. Anybody want to love life and have good days? Me and Don, okay. Y'all missed it. That was one chance. Me and Don get it. That's it. He tells us how to do it. You want to love life and have good days? Then let the Lord fight your battles. You don't return evil for evil. On the contrary, blessing for evil. Now, let's just make sure we all understand we're all human here. Most of us don't do this naturally. Most of us, when punched, think about how hard to punch back. Most of us, that's how we're, you know, did you punch me? Okay, we're going to watch this. I got a couple punches for you. And this is how we're naturally geared. And then comes Christ, who was reviled and reviled not back, who turned the other cheek, who was silent before his shearers. Guys, look at verse 13. We're not going to get here this week, but I want you to see this. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you are blessed and do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled here, verse 15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense that is an answer to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ, they may be ashamed for it is better if it is the will of God for you to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Stop right there, eyes up here. He then finishes chapter three by using Jesus Christ as another example and proof text. Peter the Apostle, writing to the church who was going through great persecution. The great persecution hadn't even begun yet. It was going to intensify. And so Peter says, people are going to ask you, verse 15, for the hope that lies within you. They're about to burn you and you're smiling and they're going to say, why are you happy? They're about to take your belongings and you're giving them to them willingly and going to be arrested without complaint. And they're going to ask you, why do you have this hope? What's going on within you? You're losing everything. Everything's falling apart. And your worst days can be your best days. And here's the good news. We're in 2021. It's already served up for us. 2020, how many of you guys would think that 2020 was like one of the worst years, some of the worst experiences you've ever been through as a country? I mean, just, this is the worst that you've ever been through. There's good news in that. Because as a believer... Did you know that this is the worst it will ever be for you? It will never be worse for you after this life. For the non-believer, did you know that this is the best it will ever be? This is the best administration you'll ever get. This is the best economy a non-believer will ever live in. This is the best Super Bowl a non-believer will ever experience. And for the believer, though, this is the worst. It's only going to get better for us. After this life is going to be Better than we could ever imagine. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived the things that God has in store for us. That's not necessarily speaking about here. That's speaking about there. And so God says, okay, if, if it gets bad down here, here's what I want you to do. I want you, all of you, to be of one mind. I want you to be, that's the first thing he says. You guys can write these notes down. Put it in your, put it in there. There's little notes right there in front of you. He says, finally, I want you to be of one 
mind. And the way we can only do this together is if we find ourselves discovering the mind of God, which was revealed in the Word of God. How can we be of one mind without being in His Word? The answer is, you can't. But as we all read this book, we find ourselves being of one mind. Let me explain this to you. When I see a Christian at another church, or I see a car driving down the road with a little fish on the backside, or I'm traveling to another state, or I just see, and I see a believer, my, my heart rejoices. Like, you're a believer? You mean you believe in the Word of God, and you believe in Jesus Christ, and the Trinity, and heaven and hell? You believe that? Yeah, I believe. Oh, that's so awesome. And now, all of a sudden, we're one mind. You know what we're not, though? We're not the exact same. Have you noticed this before? There are lots of diversities within the church of God, and the difference between unity and uniformity is vast. I want you guys to understand this. While there is unity within the body of Christ, there is not uniformity. Somebody say amen, please. There is not uniformity. The only place you're ever going to find unity and uniformity is in cults. Everyone does the same, believes the same, dresses the same, thinks the same, salts their eggs the same. Everyone's exactly the same. It's never, you know, no diversity. Those are cults. But within Christianity, there is the ability to have one mind, okay, and a diverse body. Matter of fact, I have one brain. It's my epicenter. Everything happens up here. It's my my government. All it's happening right here. But there's great diversity and freedom within my body. Same DNA, same goal, same connect, same bloodstream. Let me make sure you guys understand this. This is very important in your Christianity, that we be of one mind. We call this open-handed and close-handed issues. There are open-handed issues within Christianity, That is how we align ourselves politically, how we align ourselves economically. Some of you guys have jobs that make lots of money and you have a house here and a rental there. Some of you guys have taken the the vow of poverty and you live differently and there's there's freedom in that. Some of you have lots of kids, some of you have no kids, some of you have a few kids. There's freedom in how you educate your kids and how you dress and how you entertain yourself. There's great freedom and the Holy Spirit will walk with you down the road and he'll say what's right or wrong and he'll navigate you. But there is great liberty and there is great freedom in the open-handed issues. There are, however, close-handed issues. These are issues within Christianity that we as a church have established. These are have no negotiation. That is that Jesus Christ is God, that there is no way to heaven except through him, his death, burial, and resurrection. Hell is real. Heaven is real. The Bible is inerrant. It is God's word. There's all these close-handed issues. And here's the cool thing. When you figure this out as a Christian, because I've been a Christian now for a little over 20 years, and I used to think there were more close-handed issues. Like, that's a close-handed issue. And with a closed hand, you can actually come up to somebody and pop them right in the face. Just kind of fight. And I actually will. I'll fight people over the closed-handed issues. But I've realized those closed-handed issues aren't as many as I once had thought. There's a lot more open-handed issues. And in an open-handed issue where you think differently than I do, and you live out your Christianity differently in the way you raise your kids or where you raise your life or how that works for you, you know what I can do with my hand? I can hold yours. We can be in fellowship. And you can worship Jesus without drums and without pianos and without sound systems and without lights. And you can have a church with pews and you can have all these other things. And you can have a pastor that wears a suit and tie. But to say that a pastor that doesn't wear a suit and tie or doesn't have a piano or doesn't have these things is not part of the church of God, that's a lack of understanding within our diversity. Be of one mind. This is a command. Peter is writing this to churches scattered. He says, guys, have the same mind. Don't be divided on these other issues. Here's a question I want you guys to ask. I'm going to ask you seven questions today. Okay, write these down. Number one question, who do you need to be of one mind with right now, even if you don't agree on every issue? I want you to think about this. They do things differently. They love Jesus Christ. He's their Savior, their Messiah. They're forgiven. They're born again. They're filled with the same Holy Spirit. And yet they do things a little differently than you. Maybe they're picking fights. Listen, maybe you're picking fights. Peter starts out, no, no, be of one mind. He goes on to say, verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. One of the greatest ways to be of one mind with others is to literally do this next step, to be compassionate for other people. This is where we get our word sympathy, where we sympathize with others in where they're at, the way they were raised, the way that they're going through life, the way that things have been handed down to them. And when you see others and have compassion on them, this is evidenced and demonstrated when people look at your life and you're a compassionate individual, not self-centered, but others-centered, not self-focused, but others-focused. You don't need to raise your hands, but how many of you guys are pretty good at being self-centered and self-focused? Like you wake up and, thank you, and you just, you think about yourself. Listen, Christianity is designed to get over yourself and to live and serve for others' good and for God's glory. 
If you ever thought about that word passion, if somebody's passionate, they're passionate about stuff. Usually it's themselves. I'm passionate about this. I'm passionate about this. To become passionate means to have that same energy that you have toward yourself towards another person. Now, can I just get your guys' attention? One of my job descriptions as a pastor is to be compassionate towards others, to have passion for your life, to be concerned about you, to care about you, to want to know you. And if I'm honest, in my flesh and in my humanity, that's hard to pull off all the time. But can you imagine to an outside world looking in at a bunch of believers who are compassionate, who have passion for other people, that are denying themselves and living for God's glory and for others' good? Not only that, the number one way to find yourself being more depressed, this is a prescription for depression, not anti-depression, for depression. The prescription for depression is to think about yourself more. Try it. Think about yourself after the sermon. Think about yourself later today at lunch. Think about yourself this afternoon. Just think about yourself. Here's a prescription for anti-depression. Don't think about yourself as much. Don't think less of yourself. That's not good. Don't, don't think bad about yourself. Just don't think of yourself. Think about others. I, I promise you, you try this. Next time you go to the grocery store, the gym, work, home, jail, wherever you go, South Beach Church, it's okay. <laughs> Ask God to give you his eyes for those people. And then buckle up. I'm, saying, I'm serious, brace. Brace yourself. Hey, God, would you show me how you look at your daughters and your, and your sons? And your mind will be melted with compassion. And you'll see men and women differently. This is an evidence of Christianity of a spirit-filled person. Not just what you believe. I'm glad you believe something. Is, is there evidence? This isn't just a Hallmark card. Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, he says. Actually, the second question is, is, who do you need to be compassionate towards right now even though they're driving you nuts? I heard some groans out there. <laughs> Make sure you write it down in invisible ink. The third thing he says to do is to love his brothers. And I, I like this one because I've got two sons back there and one daughter, and I see them loving as brothers. And statistically speaking, with brothers and sisters, there's some good days and there's some not so good days. How many of you guys grew up with siblings in the house? You know, brother, sister, brother, brother, sister, sister. Just, man, brotherly. It's, and it's awesome, man, but it's, it's tense at times. And let me go ahead and unpack this just a little bit. To love his brothers is pretty strong. Because while there may be tension at the home and while there may be heads butting, a true brotherly or sisterly love one for another will always fight for that person. You will always have that person's back. You will always endure for their well-being. Even though there may be seasons, listen, I'm going to use a different L word, where you don't love them, or should I say differently, where you love them, but you don't like them. Do you guys know that it's okay at times to unconditionally love people in the body of Christ and in this world and still not like them for certain seasons? There's no commandments that say like your brother. It says love your brother. There's no commands that say love or like your enemy. The command says love your enemy. The two are different. And sometimes there are issues and situations where I just, man, this person is driving me nuts, but you know what? I love them. And if they need me, and if they're being attacked, if things are going down for them, I am going to give myself over to them. Here's the question number three. Who do you need to love like a brother even if you don't like them right now? I had fun writing these questions out. The same couple of people were coming back in, in the same, you know. If, if today when you're answering these questions, it's the same person for every single question, you got a real problem on your hands. <laughs> if you're a Christian today, God's called you to be filled with Christ on purpose for the people that don't yet know him. Number four, he says to be tender-hearted. Love his brothers, be tender-hearted. The Bible talks about the heart and the condition of the heart roughly 900 times. The heart is the seat of the emotions. It's the place where we have to protect. The Bible says, guard your heart, for out of it flow the issues of life. And what he's literally saying here is have a tender heart. What's the opposite of a tender heart? A hard heart. A hard heart. Jesus said that divorce happens... Mark chapter 10, because of hard hearts. Hearts that are hardened. People get offended, people get hurt, people get misused, people get abused, people get neglected. All these things happen. And we harden our hearts, we protect ourselves. I'm not going to get hurt anymore. And Jesus says, no, I want you to have a tender heart. 
tender heart. It's the opposite of a hard heart. In the ministry, we have a saying that says, keep your heart soft and your skin thick. Because you're bound to get poked. You're bound to get hurt. The Bible says that his word has the ability to renew our heart, to restore our heart. And it's easy to harden our hearts and things in this world are constantly presented to us. Let me just ask this question before I unpack this a little more. In what ways or areas is your heart hard and not tender? Who do you need to have a, heart, have a tender heart towards? And this is a good question, because if you're a believer here, your theology is good. Good job. You're saved. Right on. Well done. How's your heart? This is so fun, by the way, Christian. As a husband and a wife, as a mom or a dad, as a man or a woman, when you realize your heart is hard, it's one of the raddest prayers. Lord, my heart is hard. Would you soften my heart? You can't soften your heart. You can't even change your heart. It's deceitfully wicked and above all, who can know it? But you can change your mind. God won't change your mind, but he can change your heart. And if you humble yourself and change your mind, God will come in and he will change your heart. Do you need a softer heart today, a tender heart? Are there areas in your life where your heart is hardened due to what we would call information fatigue? We have so much information, so much going on. I, I don't think we're designed for this, by the way. CNN, Fox News, MSNBC, Facebook, Instagram. We're not designed. We're not, we're not, we cannot survive with phones and all this data. We're not designed. This is the last generation. We're going to self-implode. It's going to happen. Awesome. And here's what happens. Our hearts get hard. A, a mass shooting happens. Less than 10 people are killed. Barely makes the news. Tragedy happens all over the world. Injustice, poverty, homelessness, disease. And we, it's just so much going on. We've protected ourselves from social injustice. So the question on the table is, is, what does your heart need to be tenderized towards when you drive by there behind Starbucks and see the camp of homeless people? Nowhere to go. And in your critical thinking, you're like, well, they made some bad decisions when they were younger and they continue to make bad decisions and there's a reason why they're there and I got to get my Starbucks and keep going. Is your heart tender? Last night I was thinking some families of mine that have kids that haven't been even out of their house in, in months. They have nowhere to go. And a couple were brought to my mind, a couple kids were brought to my mind that I just started feeling real, real, real love for. And almost like, spirit, like, like, it was, like it was, the spirit was saying, pray for this. Pray for these kids. Have tender heart. But it's easy to just keep going, isn't it? Peter is saying to the church that's about to get persecuted, have one mind, have brotherly love, be compassionate, and also be tender hearted. He goes on to say in verse 9, actually, you guys have the question on the table, in what ways or areas is your heart not tender? Uh, number five, he says, be courteous or humble. Now, this, by the way, is a virtue that is not normal to humanity. It's not something we're born with. It's something that we're taught, something we learn, humility. In the Roman culture, humility and courteousness was not an established virtue. It wasn't something they celebrated. So when Christians began to be courteous and humble in Rome, it was intended to display heaven on earth. All these are real similar cousins, aren't they? Love and tenderheartedness, compassion, all these things. Here's the question. What areas do you need to be more humble or courteous, especially, listen, as a witness to those around you? I'm naturally kind of a, I don't know, I'll use the P word, prideful guy. Naturally kind of just machismo. I'm, just, I'm a leader. And God challenges me to make sure that I'm leading in humility. Be humble. Be courteous. The Bible specifically says, esteem others better than yourself. This is so fun. When you walk in this Jesus style, looking at others, esteeming them as better, having compassion on them. He goes on now. The question on the table actually is, is what areas do you need to be more humble or courteous, especially as a witness to those around you? Number six, he says, don't return evil for evil. Verse nine, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Now, 
this may be for some of you, some of us, one of the crowning moments of your Christianity when you are reviled and you revile not back. Especially in this cancel culture, in this defense culture, when somebody says something about you, has a comment about you, makes a statement about you, has a, a, a rumor about you. If you're like me or like most people, when you're punched, you think about a punch back. How many of you guys are really good at comebacks? Somebody cuts you down and you have a comeback just like that. Okay, just so you know, having good comebacks is not a spiritual gift. Okay, not, not one of the spiritual gifts. Comebacks is not a spiritual gift. He says, don't revile when you're reviled against. Peter says, don't do that. I think this is a defining moment. I know it is for me. Last summer, I found myself going through a painful time. I had a friend, somebody I loved, somebody I cared for, and began to revile me. And as that happened, I wanted to revile back. I really did, but I found the Lord guiding me through it. Somebody had given me a book 20 years earlier called A Tale of Three Kings. And in a tale of three kings, it's a tale of King David, King Saul, and King Absalom. And King David and King Saul and King Absalom. And Absalom is King David's son, but Saul is King David's predecessor. He's a king that came after, or should I say, he came before David, but he was after the throne to take it from David. And the Bible tells us the stories of King David and, and King David and Saul. And Saul threw spears at David and tried to kill him. And within this book, and I want you guys to pay attention to this when you're reviled, three things are revealed in this book, A Tale of Three Kings. Number one, when a spear is thrown at you, don't let it hit you. Don't let it hit you. Remember, remember the story? King David would duck. Whoa! You know, and he, he never got hit. Number two, don't pick up the spear. And number three, keep your mouth shut. And I'll tell you what, when you're reviled, when you're attacked, don't let it bother you. Don't retaliate by picking up that same ammunition and be very careful as you navigate forward. As a matter of fact, during the summer, I had another book given to me that the whole um, direction of that book was how you respond when reviled against, listen, will determine where you end up when that attack is over. How you respond under duress when you just got fired, when you got the pink slip, when you just got dumped, when somebody misunderstood you, when somebody attacked you, how you respond during that time will determine where you end up when that storm is over. And I would just encourage you guys and gals, if you're trying to be a witness here or trying to live peacefully or trying to figure it out, the Bible tells us don't revile for reviling, don't give evil for evil. Matter of fact, he says the exact opposite. Look in verse 9. He says, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you are called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Now, how many of you guys think that returning good for evil is a tall order? Okay, anybody think that's a tall, it's a tall order? He says, knowing that you are called for this. Did you know that there's liberty in loving those who don't deserve it? There is freedom in serving your enemy in America and in our rights and our, our self, you know, we're, we're so focused on our rights. Our rights. Jesus said that he put off his rights. Philippians chapter 2. And he didn't count himself equal with God. Even though he was. He said, I, I know my rights. I'm going to set those down. And I'm going to serve. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 2. This is next level. Peter doesn't get to this till after he addresses everyone, and then in midway through the book, if you've been reviled, I want you to bless that person. Now, in my flesh, I don't want to do this. In my flesh, I'm going to have all kinds of reasons not to do this until he reminds me, you were called for this. I am a soldier, I'm enlisted in the Lord's army. I don't engage myself with the affairs of this world and I might please him who enlisted me, 2 Timothy 2. And when God calls me to love my enemies and to serve them, I'm called to this, that I may inherit a blessing, it helps me to say, okay, that is so awesome because this is the worst it will be for me ever on planet earth. This is not the place to get comfy, to have it better, to establish my rights, to make sure that nobody messes with my stuff and I got all my gear, all my things. This is not the place for that. The temptation's out there, is it not? Man, I want to have all that stuff. I got locks on my doors and so should you. But the Lord says, hey, you're living on purpose as a witness for the people around you. He says, do this that you may inherit a blessing. 
Let me give you three reasons to love others that don't love you back, to love others that could be your enemies, to pray for your enemies. Number one, you do it for God's sake because he said to. Number two, you do it for their sake because they need it. And number three, you do it for your sake because there's an inheritance that comes along with serving those who have been evil toward you. How many of you guys want an inheritance when you get to heaven? Like you want to walk in and be like, oh, look at this. (laughs) Don't lie to me. How many of you guys want that? You better want that. If you don't want that, I'll pray for you at the end of the service. That you may receive an inheritance. Does this excite anybody? I've got some enemies in my life. I've got some people that I just say, I don't like that guy. I don't like that guy. Man, they hurt me. They offended me. They don't, they don't, and usually it's because they don't like me. It's like, how, 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 how middle school are we? Like, you don't like me? Well, I don't like you even worse, you know. Welcome to middle school. <sighs> Wouldn't it be awesome if we just said, dude, I'm going to serve you because God said to. I'm going to serve you because you need it. And I'm going to serve you because it's going to bring me an inheritance. There are three levels of response to, to humans. One is evil for good. That's satanic. One is good for good, okay, that's human, and one is good for evil, and that's supernatural. Supernatural. These guys are going to die soon. There's no lawyers. There's no ACLU. There's no justice. There's no rights. Their rights are gone. And so Peter says, okay, okay, okay. Tenderhearted, one mind, be humble. Be compassionate. Don't return evil for evil. On the contrary. And if you feel that it's contrary to you, it's because it's contrary to you. (laughs) On the contrary. By the way, who's saying this? This is Pete. This is Pistol Pete. You know, it was a sword, but if he had a pistol, he'd be Pistol Pete. (laughs) Am I right or am I right? What's going on? Peter. Peter, man, Peter, Peter, pumpkin eater. He was cutting people's ears off and heads off and attacking people and mean mugging his friends, telling Jesus all these other disciples are bozos, but me and you are going to run this thing till the wheels fall off. Man, the guy was out of control until he had his life changed. And then he became Peter, the servant of God, who would be crucified upside down. History tells us in tradition that he was imprisoned in one of the worst Roman prisons ever. The prison was so bad that most people died just from the stench. Chained to a pole in knee-deep human waste for months. Never allowed to lay down, sit down. Tortured. Tradition tells us that he led every one of his captors, the Roman guards, to the Lord. I just want to read this last part and I'm going to make a comment and then we got to go. Stuff's happening. Peter uses verse Psalm 34 and he quotes and he says, For he who would love life and see good days, well, let him refrain his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit, and let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For, why? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Stop right there, eyes up here, guys. This story is pulled out of Psalm 34, which is pulled out of 1 Samuel 21 and 22. King David is running from Saul. He gets to the Philistines. They realize who he is. He's running from the Philistines and he hides in the cave of Adullam. He's wanted and he's being chased by everyone. And guess what God does? God protects him. And so King David says, the Lord. The Lord, the Lord, bless the Lord. Trust the Lord. Read Psalm 34 if you have time today. Read 1 Samuel 21 and 22 if you have time today and see King David as King David simply did this, which is the exhortation from Peter to us, to the church today and the church then. Trust the Lord and bless others. This would be so, I want to do this, by the way. I want to be that. I want to be, I want to have a reputation you guys should have, a, have a, a reputation of being kind, tenderhearted, humble, compassionate, one mind, loving his brothers, not reviling when reviled against. On the contrary, blessing when evil is toward. You should have that reputation. Or at least work for it. Trusting the Lord. To me, I actually have some specific people in my life right now where the Lord would say, look, I... I dare you to take it for a spin. Just do it. Make it who you are. Because nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. 
Guys, would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? Father, I thank you that you indeed are the supreme example of this, while Peter and the apostles and the church are touch points for our faith, Lord, examples for us. It is Jesus Christ, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, even the death of the cross. In Jesus, we thank you that we can look to you. Amen. And God, we thank you that you indeed have a plan for us. We submit our lives to you. And if you're here this morning or watching at home online and, and you need a new filling of the Holy Spirit, you really do. You take this stuff seriously. Or maybe you're here this morning and you don't even know if you're saved. Your, your life's been out of order. You've been, you've been your own king. You've been doing it your way. And you want to submit to Jesus Christ and say, Lord, use my life in this world to serve others for their good, for your glory. Whatever the case is, maybe you're selfish. Maybe you need to be saved. Maybe you need to be empowered to serve those around you. If that's you, would you just raise up your hand right now as a response to Jesus right now saying, yes, Lord, take me where I am. Do in me what you want to do. I surrender my life to you. Forgive me of my sins, Lord. And help me to live for you, your glory, and others' good. To esteem them as better than myself. Forgive me, Lord, for being so human. Forgive me, Lord, for being so sinful. Forgive me, Lord, for being so selfish. If that's you, just raise up your hand with me, Lord. My hand is up too. Forgive me, Lord, in my areas of sin and selfishness. Holy Spirit, would you keep your hands up. Holy Spirit, would you empower us to be husbands and wives, moms and dads, men and women, boys and girls who live for the good of others, not just our own selfishness. Bless us, Lord. Bless the 11 a.m. services they come in. We thank you for all you've done, all you're doing. We commit our lives to you, Lord. We receive now your Holy Spirit. We repent and receive. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said?